Thank you very much. You can be seated. I am glad to be here on a number of levels. Um, coming back to Lancaster is um, uh, quite literally like coming back home for me. Uh, I grew up here in Palmdale, Lancaster area. Uh, my family moved out here when I was middle school age. And so I went through middle school, high school uh, in East Palmdale. Uh, my family started attending Lancaster Baptist Church when I was 17. I was in high school at the time, and, uh, and I was already saved, but uh, I was not really living for the Lord. I was really a baby Christian and didn't really have a testimony. I was in public school doing public school stuff with public school friends and um, just really kind of searching for some direction in my life, and uh, the Lord led us right here to a good church, and God began to work in my heart and uh, went to the Christian school here my senior year year, and uh, man, just uh, God transformed me, went to Bible college the next year, and I have to say that coming back to West Coast Baptist College is a special blessing for me as well, because for me, uh, God uh, changed my life here at West Coast Baptist College. Uh, not only that, He shaped my life here, and then through the ministry of West Coast Baptist College, through the, uh, the classes and everything that you're a part of as students here, of course, 20 years ago, I was a part of that, and uh, God helped focus the direction of my life through my days here at West Coast Baptist College. I owe a debt of gratitude uh, to this place, but uh, through in the way that the Lord used this um, a place in my life, uh, but more specifically, uh, uh, the, the staff. I think of Dr. Getch and, and Dr. R and Dr. Weaver and so many that were my teachers, my mentors um, back when I was a student are still here investing in your life. And I hope that you know what a great blessing that is. And I hope you don't take that for granted. And I hope that you'll take every opportunity to make the most of your time here. And uh, speaking of time, I know that we are on the clock. And uh, I can tend to be a little verbose. And so we're going to get right down to it this morning. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Kings chapter number 18 with me, if you would. 1 Kings chapter number 18. I would be remiss if I did not give a greeting from my wife. And I know that uh, it's been five years since uh, my family and I left Lancaster. We were previously on staff here. Uh, I taught in the college. My wife was the dean of women uh, during that time. And then I was also on, this, on staff on the church side working with uh, young adults. And uh, five years ago, God led us up to the Seattle area. Uh, pray for the Northwest. If some of you are praying for ministry opportunities, pray for the Northwest. Um, sometimes uh, all that people know about Seattle is what they see on the news, and it's not very good. And there are some good people up there. There are some Christians up there, and there are some uh, uh, great churches that are doing a great work there, but there's a, a, a ton of uh, uh, needs there for more gospel preaching churches, for laborers to come into that harvest field in our nation and reach people with the gospel of Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a great place to serve the Lord, and uh, we're really glad that we're there. Uh, but we've been there five years. It's been an awesome five years. So uh, that means that whoever was a student back when my wife and I were here are probably not here anymore unless they're on staff. But uh, if there's anybody in here that knows or remembers my wife, uh, she wanted me to say hi to you, all right? And so you know who you are, and, uh, and I'm, um, I'm glad to uh, say a word on her behalf, all right? First Kings chapter number 18, 
Let's begin reading in verse number 30, and we'll read for verse, through verse number 39. And I want you to think about this thought. This is a very well-known passage of Scripture. Undoubtedly, uh, you have heard probably some messages on Elijah on Mount Carmel. This is a well-known passage of Scripture. I heard a number of chapel messages, but we're going to be right here. And I trust and pray that God would work in our hearts this morning on this thought about fire on the altar. You know, sometimes it's not about uh, the process of things. It's about the power. Uh, sometimes what we need in our lives as Christians is not another process. What churches need is not necessarily another program or promotion. What we really need is God's power. We need our hearts to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's easy to see that fire grow cold, isn't it? And so fire on the altar is really a focal point of this tremendous event recorded in the scriptures. But before we get further into it, would you notice with me what the Bible says in 1 Kings 18 and verse number 30? It says, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be uh, thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. And that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let's pray for the message real quick. Father, we pray for your word to pierce into our hearts and to do its work. Father, we know that without you, this is just an exercise. And Father, I pray that you would help me to be a blessing. I pray that you'd work through this message, challenge our hearts. I pray that you would set some hearts aflame from this service, this chapel service this morning. Lord, I think back of some life-changing decisions I made as a student sitting in these services. And Lord, I pray that you would just work in hearts and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today, fire is really not that big of a deal. If you want to start a fire, uh, you don't have to really work very hard. You just get something like this. And with a click of a button, you have fire. Uh, for thousands of years, for most, really, of human history, people have had to labor and work and strive to achieve fire. But we are at a place now where... 
It is so easily accessible. And because we don't have to work to get it, most of us take it for granted. In fact, that might be true with a lot of things in life, wouldn't it? A lot of times if things come easy and we don't have to work very hard to get something, we tend to take it for granted. And yet we find that our concept of fire uh, sometimes is one of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, um, uh, not necessarily like, boy, we really need this. This is precious. Uh, uh, we've got to protect this fire. We've got to keep this fire going because we could strike up a fire in multiple ways at literally any time that we desire. Well, we find that in the Word of God, fire is a symbol used as an image to describe our indescribable God. The theophany of fire is portrayed, uh, uh, it portrays God's presence. Uh, other times it portrays God's power. Other times it portrays God's protection or his purging or purifying of his people. God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. He protected the Israelites with a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see that fire and smoke was on Mount Sinai when Moses was up there for 40 days and nights receiving the commandments of the Lord. And we see that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Jeremiah said this, he said that God's word was like a fire. He said God's word was like a fire shut up in my bones so that I could not stay. Fire is emblematic of trials and testings. Peter said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as if some strange thing has happened unto you. The Holy Spirit is likened to fire. The seven spirits of God described in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 5, we see our uh, uh, lamps of fire. The empowering of the Holy Spirit uh, is likened to fire. John the Baptist said about the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come and baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. What was he speaking of? He was speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit. We see uh, a little bit later in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 3 when the disciples, after Jesus had ascended back up into heaven, had gone into Jerusalem according to the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and were waiting for the promise of the Comforter to come. When he showed up, there were cloven tongues like fire resting upon them, uh, uh, signifying the empowering of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. But did you know that God also sends fire to signify his existence? acceptance of worship. We see that in Leviticus chapter number 9. We see it in Judges chapter 13 when Manoah, uh, Samson's father, and his wife came and they offered a sacrifice and it was accepted uh, uh, by fire coming and consuming that burnt sacrifice. Of course, we see that happening here in 1 Kings chapter number 18. And then another notable occasion was when uh, Solomon had built the temple. And as he was dedicating that temple, the Bible says there in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it says that when he made an end of praying, fire fell and consumed the sacrifice that was on the altar. You know, it's important for us to understand what an altar is. We live under the new covenant, the New Testament, uh, and uh, we are not under the ceremonial or civil obligations of the Old Testament law, but we find that altars are very much still important in your life and in my life as believers today. 
We don't have to go to a physical altar per se, but what is the altar? Why is it important? Well, may I say this? Is not the altar for you and I today our lives, our hearts? Uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, in verse number 1, he said, Therefore I beseech you, uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Well, where do we lay that sacrifice on? It's our lives. And we offer our bodies, we offer our values, we offer our priorities, we offer everything that we are in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the altar is a place of sacrifice. And yet we find that, uh, 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 we find that what is necessary here in this occasion with Elijah was uh, uh, not uh, just the sacrifice. You see the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove, they were putting a sacrifice on their altar as well. But what made the difference? It was the fire of God that accepted that sacrifice and it was the fire on the altar in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Uh, the altar that was there had, an, had a perpetual fire that was burning. It was to signify the uh, eternal presence of God among his people and the everlasting power of God among his people. We see that when Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain to offer him, Isaac uh, offered this observation when they uh, almost were there to that place of sacrifice. He said to his father Abraham, he said, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? But here... In 1 Kings chapter 18, we see that it's different. They had the wood, they had the, the, the sacrifice, but what they needed was the fire. It was the fire that was missing. Well, why was that fire missing? And I want you to parallel that with our own lives. Sometimes we could be missing some fire from our lives, if you will, that place of sacrifice, our lives on which we are to offer spiritual sacrifices unto God can lack the fire of God. We need fire on the altar. And yet we find that there were some contributing factors to the lack of the fire. First of all, I want you to see the seriousness of the situation. If you'll go back to chapter number 16, we see that not only did Israel lose the fire from off the altar, but they lost their altar altogether. Uh, we see that this was during the time of the divided kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel made up the northern kingdom, often called Israel, or in some cases Ephraim, but uh, they are, their capital was Samaria. And then we find that uh, two of the twelve tribes made up the southern kingdom of Judah. And we find that it was uh, here uh, in this northern kingdom where Ahab, was, uh, where Ahab had been made king in chapter 16. We find that uh, he was a wicked king. In fact, all of the kings that ruled over the northern kingdom were all kings that did evil in the sight of God. There were a few uh, in, the, in the kingdom of Judah uh, that did uh, what was right in the sight of God. But all of them in the northern kingdom were evil kings. And Ahab, one of the worst. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29 and through verse number 33, it says in the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab to the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 20 and 2 years. But when you jump forward to verse number 32, notice what the Bible says. It says, and he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal. 
The seriousness of the situation was this. First, Israel's powerful. In other words, from the greatest in the nation all the way down to the least, if you will, uh, had uh, full-fledged gone into idolatry. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had collectively turned their back on the one true God, and they were worshiping Baal. It says that he raised up an altar to Baal in the house of Baal. He erected a temple to Baal. He had an altar there, and they were worshiping idols when they should have been worshiping God. It says, and Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. You see, Israel's powerful had rejected truth. Ahab was a wicked king. He had rejected the truth of God. And of course, it influenced the whole nation to do the same. Not only that, we see that Israel's people were under a recompensed trial. Well, there's always consequences to sin. And there's always consequences when we depart from, uh, from the Lord, our God. And we see that uh, Elijah comes along. And, and we see that in chapter 17 and verse number 1, uh, uh, he says, uh, uh, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And so he declared that for three years there was going to be no rain in Israel. And that's exactly what happened. And of course, as a result of no rain came drought. As a result of drought came crop failure. As a result of crop failure came famine. And as a result of famine came all manner of other trials. You see, the people were under a recompensed trial. It was, they, were, uh, uh, they were receiving uh, the consequences of their sin, their departure from the Lord. But then we see uh, also that Israel's posterity and their purpose had been redirected tragically. Well, their posterity is referring to the future generations to come. And of course, their purpose was this. What was the purpose of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel? Well, they were to represent the one true living God. It was through God's chosen people that he was going to reveal himself to the rest of the nations. And so it was a grave sin indeed when they would uh, depart from the Lord, commit spiritual adultery, as it were, and go after idle gods and make the power of God and the holiness of the one true living God a reproach to the rest of the world. Oh, how sad, how tragic. Their posterity and their purpose had been redirected tragically. And by the way, if you think about it, we see some parallels to this progression even happening in our world today. Even in America today, we see that the powerful uh, of our land has rejected truth. We see that there are, uh, the people uh, of our land, the people of America, we're really uh, right now reaping the consequences of some of the bad decisions that we have made, and especially in the area of rejecting God and departing from his truth. And then we see that our posterity, what is to become of the future generations? What about our purpose? And especially as Christians in America, have we lost sight of what our purpose is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, to go into everywhere and preach the gospel, to glorify him and to make him known, to reach people for Jesus' sake? Many Christians have lost fire off the altar. Israel had lost the fire 
they had lost the altar altogether. But then I want you to notice, secondly, not only do we see the seriousness of the situation, but we see the similarities of their service. When they began to uh, uh, have this showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and the false prophets of Baal and of the groves. Now again, we read for our text the sort of the end of the story. Uh, we didn't really go into the whole uh, story for sake of time, but just to kind of bring us all up to speed, hopefully we're, most of us are familiar with uh, perhaps how this story goes, but Elijah comes after three years of drought, and he comes to Ahab, and, and uh, Ahab says, hey, are you the one that troubleth Israel? And Elijah says, I'm not the one who's troubling Israel, it's you. And Elijah uh, makes a, 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 a proposal. He says, why don't we see who the real God is? Basically what he said. He said, you take your prophets of Baal and of the groves and we'll go up to Mount Carmel and we'll set up a sacrifice, an altar, wood, a sacrifice. I'll do the same. And the, the God that answers by fire is the, is the real God. That's what, that's what it says. And so we see that uh, uh, the resemblance between these two services, that is, as they were giving sacrifice on top of Mount Carmel, the, the, the similarities or the resemblance was congruent when they liked their disproportionate odds. Here's what I mean by that. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 18, look with me, if you would, at verse number 23. The Bible says in verse number 23, let them therefore give two bullocks, this is Elijah speaking, and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. Now, let's stop right there. Is it safe to say that what Elijah is doing and what the prophets of Baal are doing are identical at this point? They're doing exactly the same thing. There's no variance, there's no difference. The resemblance is congruent. And yet, uh, verse number 24, uh, he says, And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. What a great idea. You see, the devil doesn't mind copying Christianity when he thinks the odds are in his favor. The devil doesn't mind how many people go to church so long as they're distracted from the truth of the gospel. The devil doesn't mind how many people are religious. The devil doesn't mind how many religions are closely resembling Christianity so long as he feels the odds are in his favor. And make no mistake, there are, uh, he thinks the odds are in his favor. He came to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 4, did he not? And he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, all the kings of the earth I'll give to you. He thinks he's got a majority. And yet we find that uh, the resemblance was congruent when they liked their disproportionate odds. We go on to verse number 25 and notice what the Bible says there. It says in verse number 25 that they, they began to, and Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first uh, uh, for your many and call on the name of your gods and put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given. Now if you jump forward, uh, look at verse number 26. Uh, it says uh, at the end of the verse, and they called on the name of Baal, watch this, from morning, uh, from, from morning even until noon, saying, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. So Elijah said, you call on the name of your gods, 
I'll call on the name of the Lord. Again, it was still the same. There was lots of people that pray in the world. Lots of people that, uh, 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 that go to uh, a worship service and offer some kind of worship or sacrifice. But we see that not all of these uh, acts of worship are acceptable unto God. Not all of these forms of worship are right and true and, and have placed uh, the one true God as their object, obviously, right? We live in a day where there's a pluralistic mindset that says, hey, uh, all religions are basically the same, right? They all kind of lead eventually to the same God, different expressions and different ways of worship. But hey, we're all just kind of worshiping the same God. Well, that's not true according to the word of God. What's the difference? Well, it ought to be the God that answers by fire. What ought to be the difference in your life between somebody else who just says, I'm spiritual, I have faith, oh, I go here, I go there. It ought to be the fire of God upon your life. It ought to be the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and bringing about real life change. We see that these prophets of Baal, they prayed and they called upon their gods from morning until noon. Nothing happened. And we see that then the rules, secondly, changed when they lacked the desired outcome. The rules changed. Notice the end of verse number 26, what it says. It says, uh, nor any, uh, there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. Verse 27, and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing or he's on a journey or peradventure he sleepeth or must be awaked. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after, the manner, after their manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. Do you see all of a sudden something changed? The rules changed for them. They changed the rules when they lacked their desired outcome. Listen, if Satan can't distract people with his efforts of forgery, he will use an emphasis on emotions. An overemphasis on emotionalism. Did not he do that with Eve in the Garden of Eden? Play to her emotions. She saw that the tree was... Uh, desirous to, uh, uh, good to the eye, right? Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It was, it was good, uh, pleasant to the eye. It was uh, able to make one wise. He was able to kind of play to her emotions. You know, the devil sometimes, through an overemphasis on emotion, can try to distract people and even lead them away from a close and powerful walk with God and a firm standing on God's truth. We ought to guard our hearts. Listen, I'm not against programs. I'm not against efforts to get the gospel out more and more. We ought to be doing that. I'm not against innovation in the ministry. But yet we see sometimes this attractionist model of ministry, and it's not new, but... 20 years ago, when I was in Bible college, uh, uh, there, were, there were guys that graduated with me, and, and then over the years, some of them began to kind of change. Maybe they, they weren't seeing the results they wanted to see, and 
the rules for them began to change. I don't know. I certainly can't judge their hearts, but we see a trend sometimes in some people wanting to change the rules, being attracted by uh, an emotionalist uh, type of worship. And we see in the modern church in America, sometimes the emphasis overly so is on emotion at the expense of truth. But God says, hey, what we don't need, uh, what we, what we, what we uh, don't need to have is another process. You see, the problem with these false prophets was not in the process, Right? They set the sacrifice there. They called upon their gods. Nothing happened. So then they began to leap on the altar. They began to cut themselves. All of a sudden it became a show. Are you with me? All of a sudden it became hype. Out of all the people that were there watching that, how many of you think that they were, uh, which, which group, Elijah or the prophets of Baal in the groves? Which, which, which ones were, they, were the crowd drawn to probably more in that moment? They were probably captivated by the show, mesmerized by the passion of these prophets. Oh, Baal, show, gushing blood. I don't know. That's gross. But man, they were putting on a spectacle. And the people were stuck between two opinions. Elijah had already said, why halt ye between two opinions? If Baal is God, Follow him, but if the Lord be God, follow him. And the Bible says they answered him not a word. And now they're being inclined to follow the prophets of Baal still because of this emphasis on emotion. The problem was not in the process. Listen, the problem was in the power. And even for Christians, I understand you may not be worshiping idol, idols or anything like that, but listen, Guard your heart against being tempted to follow some kind of a worldly method that's not biblical, uh, that's not holy, that's just merely for the sake of attracting people. Uh, be very careful about that because the problem probably is not in the process. Well, we just need to get away from this and we need to kind of get away from that. Listen. There are some things that we could legitimately say, oh, well, maybe that served, that was maybe a, a thing that happened and, you know, our culture has changed a little bit. And, but when it comes to fixtures in the Word of God, the, the God's truth never changes. And we ought to have a heart that says, listen, before I change a process, before I just add another program, maybe I ought to check the power. Is there fire on the altar of my life? Sometimes it's not reinventing yourself. It's not sort of changing uh, uh, the rules of the game, so to speak. Uh, it's just humbling yourself before God and getting his power back on your life. We come to a third and final thing here. And we see that there was a serious situation, of course, there were similarities in their service, but then it all changed when nothing was happening. And of course, then the devil was trying to distract the people still through this emotionalism, this hype, this sensationalism, and it was just powerless. But then we see Elijah, his turn comes. The prophets of the Baal and of the groves, they, 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 they did that from noon until the evening time. They did their show. Nothing happens still. Then the time of the evening sacrifice comes. And Elijah steps up. And I want you to see, lastly, we find the surrender of a servant. 
on display. This surrender of a servant involved a readying for action because Elijah could not step up in this moment and have God's power on his life were it not for some previous times in his life where God was able to teach him and transform him. We see that this readying for action could be traced all the way back to the beginning of chapter number 17. Would you look there very quickly with me as we seek to close the message? In 1 Kings 17 and verse number 2, the Bible says, The word of the Lord came unto him, Elijah, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. This was a time where God was developing, forging the faith of his servant. Elijah learned to depend upon God at Cherith. Well, the book, the brook dried up, as we saw just a minute ago, and then God said, I want you to go into Zarephath. I've prepared a widow woman there to sustain you. And of course, many of you know the story. He met her and she said, oh, I think you got the wrong lady. We're starving to death, me and my son. I just have enough ingredients left to make one last meal. We're going to make that meal. We're going to eat it. And then we're going to die. And of course, he said, well, make me a meal first. You know the end of the story. The meal never ran out. The cruise of oil never went dry. Again, another faith-building moment in Elijah's life. He saw God meet him at his point of faith. He learned to depend upon God. He learned to depend upon God. Well, then we come to Carmel, and we see that there would have been no Carmel had there not been first a Cherith. You see, in your life and in my life, perhaps we're not ready to be used in these big moments if we're not learning to depend upon God and letting God's power work in us in the everyday moments. Are you with me? Amen. There can't be a Carmel without a Cherith. But then we see that there was a readying for action that led to this surrendered servant. But then there also needed to be a repairing of the altar. Now we get back to our text. And look at verse number 30 of chapter 18. Did you notice what it said? It said, Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Sometimes in order for fire to come back on the altar of our lives, we need to repair the altar. Here, obviously, the altar of the Lord had been long since broken down. The ruins of it probably kind of scattered around that little area there. I don't know what it would have looked like. We could only speculate, but, but it was broken down. Elijah came and he repaired the altar. He understood that 
there was something that needed to be restored in God's people before the fire could come. And so too, our altars can be easily broken down. Sin breaks our altar. Pride breaks our altar. I mean, we could list it, can't we? There are lots of things that can break down our altar and we lose not just the, the fire, but the altar. And before we can get fire back on the altar, we need to repair the altar itself. How is your altar today? Is there some repairing that needs to be done by God's truth and grace and love in your life? Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 5, he also has lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable unto God by Jesus Christ. But we can't be doing that if our altar's broken down. We find that Elijah took 12 stones to repair this altar. Even that was meaningful. Remember, it was the divided kingdom. No longer was it 12 tribes of Israel unified together as one people for God. They were divided. They were in chaos. They were in shambles. Elijah took 12 stones, each one representing 12 tribes of Israel, and made up that altar. Do you know what he was doing? He was reminding the people that day of who they were their identity, and what their purpose was. You know, when we have to repair our altar, one of the baselines, one of the, 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 the places that we can get back to to begin that rebuilding process is to be reminded of who we are in Christ and what exactly our purpose is. Is our purpose for life to make me happy? Or is our purpose to make him happy? To glorify him? To do his will? Is that not our purpose? Elijah was calling the people back to their purpose. To who they were. You're, you're supposed to be the people of God. God was using him to turn their hearts back to him. We see the readying for action, the repairing of the altar. But lastly, then it came to this, a requesting that was acceptable. In verse number 36, it says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord and that thou hast turned their heart back again. By the way, as you look at that prayer, was that a selfish prayer? Was Elijah the focal point of that prayer or was he praying for God's glory to be restored? Was he praying for, he, he said that the people would know that you're God. The people would turn their hearts back to you. He was just a surrendered servant. He was just a vessel that God was able to use. And when he requested, notice this also. 
after the whole spectacle of Baal was over, Elijah shows up. Now, we, don't, we, we know Elijah was kind of a wild and woolly guy. A leathern girdle coming from the wilderness. The Bible says John the Baptist, when, when he showed up on the scene before Jesus Christ began his ministry, when John the Baptist was ministering, people thought, he's like Elijah, <laughs> eating his grasshoppers and honey and his wild and woolly appearance. So here comes this unsophisticated country preacher. And he doesn't leap on the altar. He doesn't make a spectacle. He doesn't focus overly so on the emotions. He's just a surrendered servant. Watch me. He's a surrendered servant who had the fire of God upon his life. And he simply asked for God to bring fire on the altar. And it was a request that was acceptable to God. He had the power of God. The power of God always makes up a majority. The power of God trumps everything else. You say, well, I don't really know that much. I don't really have very much ability. I have a hard time talking to people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have a learning disability, whatever it is. Do you have the power of God? The greatest people used of God recorded in the Bible were those that were surrendered servants upon whom the fire of God rested. It doesn't matter who you are. God can use you if you'll have fire on your altar. One last verse before we dismiss or close the service. Hebrews chapter 12. Would you turn there? I'm done. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse number 28 and 29. I love this. As you turn there, remember verse number 38 of 1 Kings 18. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Because the fire that because the fire rested on Elijah's life, listen to me. Because that was so, God made a life-changing difference in a multitude of people. Is that the end of the story? The people they they realized the Lord is God. Their hearts turned back to him. Why? Because of a surrendered servant. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 28 and 29. Notice this. It says, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. By the way, how many of you are thankful for that? Amen. Watch this. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Verse 29, don't miss it. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together.